0: Good morning everyone, I want to thank our sponsors for our parsha class this morning. Co-sponsored by Perry and Erica Galler in memory of his father, Moshe Eliezer ben Rav David, and Harriet Schneier in memory of her husband, Chaim ben Abba, Neshamnos should have an Aliyah. Amen. A reminder, our Shul, Bokerton Synagogue dinner is coming up on Sunday, March 11th. Among our honorees... Uh, our Congresswoman, Eliana Ross-Layton, who's retiring from Congress. She's one of the most staunch advocates for the U.S.-Israel relationship, has been an absolute hero for Israel in Congress. It's an opportunity for everyone to say thank you. Thank you to her. It's an opportunity for you to say thank you to us. If you've enjoyed Bokerton Synagogue, the Parsha class on Tuesday mornings, particularly if you're not a member but you benefit from the programs that BRS provides, please consider taking out an ad in our uh, journal and participating and supporting our efforts, we greatly appreciate it. I want to remind you, I know that people are starting to head back north for the, uh, I'm not really sure why, actually. <laughs> I think it's still cold and snowy, and I don't think in the best weather why you'd want to be up there when you could be sitting down here with the palm trees and the quality of life that we have. But for whatever bizarre reason, some of you are heading back. So, uh, I remind you, you can continue to listen to our Parsha class online. We post it on YU Torah each and every week, and soon, please God, on the new website that we'll be putting out shortly. I want to try to incorporate some ideas about Purim. I don't know if you got the memo, but Purim is tomorrow night. So, some thoughts about Purim. And uh, also, obviously, our Parsha, Parsha's Kisisa, we on page 484 in the Arts Girl Stone. Chumash. last announcement. As a reminder, tonight is the finale of the Moments That Matter, 20th Century Moments That Mattered program. I'll be teaching at 7.30 p.m. on the history of Yom HaShoah. Just like when we covered the Soviet Jewry Movement, you might think, what was the controversy? What's the debate? Isn't it obvious? But Yom HaShoah, while maybe a staple in communities around the world today, was not at all obvious when it was introduced, and remains not obvious in many communities today. We'll talk about it at 7.30, the history of it and why that is. Page 484 in the Scroll stone, Chumash. Our Pasha begins with the mitzvah of Machatzis Shekel. Kisi says, Rosh B'nei Yisrael Ish Hashem Osam. tells Moshe to take a census of the people. And what is the means, the mechanism through which the census is taken is through the donation of a half shekel. We've covered this countless times. Why? A half shekel of census would be much more efficient. If everyone donated a full shekel, you just count how many shekel you have, and you know how many people you have. Why is everyone giving a half shekel? Why are you giving a half shekel? And the answer is to realize that none of us are complete, none of us are whole or full on our own. We complement one another. It takes two. It takes Jewish people in combination with a sense of unity in order to be whole. We're not whole on our own. Vinasnu is a palindrome. It's the same spelled forward and backwards, which is a reminder that one gives, they receive as much as they as much as they gave. Hashem gave Moshe. Hashem showed Moshe. When Moshe didn't understand, He showed him a matbea shel a coin which was on fire. The image of a coin in fire. What is the significance of the image of a coin on fire? We're going to come back to this. But there's a peculiar language. When telling us of the mitzvah of giving a half shekel, the pasuk describes that we give it. Why? Pasuk Tezvav, verse 15, The wealthy person shouldn't increase. It's not an opportunity to promote your name by giving a larger donation. yamit, And the indigent person cannot give less. That's how much you give. Why? The reason you're giving is to give a portion to Hashem. And what's the goal? What are you trying to accomplish? To atone for your souls. You can pay your way. How does it atone for your soul? You made a mistake. You did something wrong. You give stucca and you get paid off. Pay your way out. Khalilah, Lahavdil, it's not like other religions. You make a terrible mistake, you violate indiscretion, you go sit in a booth and you confess what you did and you say, uh, say two of these and three of those and you're good to go. That's not how change happens. Remorse, transformation, personal responsibility, genuine tshuva process, you can't pay your way out. You come before the judge and you pay your way out. This is in fact a very compelling question Particularly in the Um Kippurim period, when we say that tshuva tzila utstaka utzaka mavir nisroah hagzera, we talked about this. Tshuva, I understand why it's mavir roah How do I avoid the intensity of the gzera God has for me? Tshuva. Well, God, you decided that that conclusion was right for the old me, but tshuva. I'm about tshuva. I'm a new me. I've reinvented myself. I'm reborn. I'm renewed. <coughs> And therefore I'm deserving of a new judgment. Chuba, I understand. Tfila, lehis pa'lel, Tfilah is reflexive, hit pa'el. So I'm a new me. Through the exercise of Tfilah, through a sense of dependence, through a sense of humility, I'm a new me. So Tshuva tfila, I understand why they are tools to be ma'avir israel ha-gizera. But staka, you come before the judge and you pay your way out. The judge calls you in. You accused of a crime. I understand. You say, "I'm about tshuva. I'm. Uh, I have remorse. I've reinvented myself." Judge, please take pity on me. I'm a new person. Tfila, judge, I, I plead with you. I beg you. I beseech you. My destiny is in your hands. But judge, how big should I write the check? How many zeros will it take? Why should that work? How is that ethical? How is that moral? How is that just? So here the Torah is using the language, what's the goal of Machat Tzah Shekel? Lechaper al To atone. Where is the atonement? So in the Rabbi Salavet Shechumash, the Rav writes, Sin, although we hate that word sin, so we'll call it chait, is a result of selfishness when temptation overrules sacred principles. Why do we make mistakes? Because our urge, our temptation, overrules and overrides our sacred principles. We know in theory, we know in principle, that's the virtuous behavior, but it's a right now. Got us to look at that, say that, eat that, think that, go there. One abandons tradition because of the pleasure one expects to derive from the for- performance of the forbidden deed. Staka, in contrast, demonstrates sympathy, compassion, and sharing with others. For this reason, forgiveness for sin can only be attained through staka. Staka also acts as ransom. Because kofar is is ransom. In order to redeem himself, the sinner must pay a ransom. Torah therefore describes the half-shekel offering as a redemption payment for the soul. So the Rav describes, you know why stucco works? Because when you make a mistake, it's an act of selfishness. You put your desire, your urge, your appetite, your temptation, your want, your need, you put it above, you put it before the principles you claim to want to live by. You put it before the social contract you have with others. You put it before your responsibility to serve the Rebun Shalom and His vision for this world. At its core, chayit is the result of indulgence, self-indulgence. So what is the ransom? What's the kofar? What is the atonement? What is the opposite of selfishness? Selflessness. And what is selflessness? Taking your hard-earned money and giving it we talked about last week, a week before, the Ramba Mornavuchim. Why is it called Stucka? Should be called Chesed. Where's the Tzedek? I take something of mine and I give it to you. But leaving that aside, the bottom line is I take money and rather than use it to advance my interest, to buy myself something, I share it with you. So you have. So that's selflessness. How do I overcome selfishness? With acts of selflessness. And that's why it's Kofar Nafsho. How does one achieve atonement for the mistakes they've made? The Mistake stems from selfishness. The answer is selflessness. So tztaqa is not about trying to bribe the judge. Tztaqa is also proving I'm transformed. Just like tshuva is, I'm a new person, give me a new judgment. Just like tefillah is an exercise in humility, dependence. I'm due, I'm worthy of a new judgment. So tztaqa is, ribonu your material, physical world. The gifts, the blessings that I have of money, I've used it previously to serve myself. I want to prove to you I'm new, I'm different and how can I prove it? Instead of being selfish, by being selfless, by taking it and using it with others and that's how Tztaqa serves Lachaper Al-Nafshar seichem. Parsha then goes on and tells us another one of the Kalim in the Mishkan which should beg the question that we asked at the end of last week's Parsha. Where do Kalim belong? Where would you have expected to find it? In Parsha's Truma. At the end of last week, we talked about the Mizbeach HaKetorahs, so the altar for incense. And we asked, what was it doing at the end of the Tzavah? Really, it should have been in Truma. You could ask the exact same thing here. Why is the Kiyor here? We're not going to ask that, because we're not going to get into it. But we, it's a good question, worthy to ask. The Kiyor, of course, was the basin through which the Kohanim would wash their hands, their feet, would prepare for the Avoda. When we wash our hands, which we talked about last week, we are elevating our experience of eating to be a form of avoda. It's not that I'm religious and I do ritual when I'm in the shul, but when I sit down to eat, I fress and I don't care. When I sit down to eat, I'm like the Kohen. I wash my hands, I am preparing myself as well. Where did the kior come from? What was at the base of the basin? And the Kohen would look what it was on the bottom, what was it made from? From the mirrors that the women had beautified themselves with. But all for another time. Then we go on to the anointing oil. Take for yourself the choicest spices. And what is the best spice? What is the finest spice? The first one that's mentioned is Mar Doror. In the middle of page 486 miros v'kidman besam machatziso bosam the make the Sheman ha the anointing oil that was used in order to inaugurate the vessels it was used in order to appoint the koanim it's used in order to anoint kings what is it made from? the first spice it's used from is the mar duror the gemar in chulan when it says haman minatora minayim how do you know where do you see an allusion to haman in the torah haman of course came much later after the Torah. Where do you see an allusion to Haman in the Torah? Hamin ha'etz ha'das. When Hashem challenges Adam, did you eat from the tree? I told you not to. What's the connection? Is it just a play on words, Haman and Hamin? Shefter always explained that the connection is, Adam and Chava are placed in Gan Eden and they're told, enjoy the garden. You could have anything you want. It's all yours. Enjoy it. Just one thing you can't have. But they weren't able to contain themselves. And we call it the forbidden fruit. That which we can't have is what we want the most. They wanted the forbidden fruit and that clouded their judgment and that led to sabotaging their own destiny and success. Haman too had everything. Haman had everyone bowing down. What got under Haman's skin? There was one thing he couldn't have. There was one lousy Jew who wouldn't bow down. One Jew wouldn't bow down. And Haman sabotaged his own success because had Haman been satisfied with the whole rest of the 127 Medinas bowing down to him, and only the one lousy Jew not bowing down, he would have remained the prime minister. He would have remained in the position he was at, and who knows, he could have continued in that position in glory. He brought about his own downfall. Why? Because like Adam, Haman hamin, he couldn't resist the forbidden fruit. The one thing that he couldn't have it clouded his judgment because of how badly he wanted it. The Gemara there says, Esther Minatorah, Torah. How do we know about Esther? Esther, Esther panai. because Hashem's face is hidden. Esther is about hiddenness. Hashem is hidden in the Megillah. Megillah's Esther. Megala is the Nestor. When we read the Megillah, we're trying to reveal Hashem's hand. We're trying to see Hashem's hand within, within the story. What about Mordechai? Mordechai Minhat Torah Minayan. And the Gemara there, Chulin, quotes this Pasuk. Mordechai mar dachi, dachi is mar Doror. It's the Aramaic for mar mor Mordechai. Which is this first of the finest spices. What's the connection? The fine spice and Mordechai. What's the connection? We talked about it a little bit last week. We talked about the Ketorah, the incense. That God breathed life into us through our nostrils. God is described as getting angry when he flares his nostrils. God is described as being patient when he expands his nostrils, Erech which is in this week's parsha, Yeh and, uh, Midos. And the Ktoras is what turns Midas Adin to Midas Arachamim, and Mordechai is that catalyst. Mordechai is who invokes the Midas because Mordechai, like a great human being, affirms that God breathes Itzelam Elohim into his nostrils. Just like Mar-Duror in our parsha is the finest of all the spices. Mordechai is the finest of all the Jews of his generation. So here I'll deviate for a little tangent to tell you something incredible about Purim. Because we talk about Mordechai as Mar-Jeror. He's the finest of his generation. Mordechai is the choicest. And we think of Mordechai, if not one of the heroes of the story of Purim, but we consider Mordechai to be the hero. He choreographs, he orchestrates the whole salvation. He orchestrates the whole story. He guides Esther, people to fast and to daven. He emerges as a leader, not only of the Jewish people but of the Persian government. He's rotsu l'rovechav, which I always take great comfort as a rabbi in, that even Mordechai saves the entire community, saves the entire people from extermination, from annihilation, and rovechav. He got most of the vote. When it came time for his vote, he got the majority what Jew in Shushan didn't vote for Mordechai? Who could possibly vote against Mordechai? Even Mordechai was <laughs> ratzoi lorov echav. Moshe Rabbeinu takes the Jews out of Egypt, Tanmakos splits the sea, brings them to the Torah, takes them to the desert, and what happens? We'll get to Parshish Pekudei in a few weeks. Why is Moshe taking an accounting? Why does he have to provide an audit of the Mishkan um, appeal? Because people were suspicious of it. They accused him of siphoning off money. He was also accused of sleeping with their wives, the great Moshe Rabbeinu. So if that was Moshe, and this is Mordechai, it makes you feel better that, uh, that you don't have 100% love of the people. So anyway, Mordechai, if not one of the heroes, but we think of Mordechai as the hero of the story. But the truth is, if you take a moment to think about it, is Mordechai really Mar Doror? Is Mordechai really the choices the finest? Is he really the hero? Maybe he's a villain. Maybe he's the perpetrator in the story. He, in fact, is the catalyst for what initiated the decree to exterminate the Jews of Shushan and well beyond. Why? What do I mean? Would it have been so terrible for Mordechai to bow down just one time? Just bow down one time. Just once. Not only does he refuse to bow down to Haman, but he antagonizes Haman. What do I mean? Mordechai, you don't want to bow down? avoid Haman. Just avoid him and avoid the circumstance of being asked to bow down. But what does Mordechai do? He camps out on Haman's route to the palace. So Haman will dafka walk by him and he will dafka be defiant and not bow down. And, and it works. He antagonizes Haman and Haman is so bothered that he goes to Ahasuerus and says, I have a favor. I want to destroy this entire people because of Mordechai. So is Mordecai the hero? Is he the mar Or is he the villain? Just bow down one lousy time. And even after Haman announces his decree to destroy the Jewish people, Mordechai continues to snub him. And when Ahasuerus remembers what Mordechai had done to save his life, and he sons Haman to reward him by parading him publicly, Mordecai could have declined the honor, preserved Haman's dignity, try not to alienate and antagonize him anymore. But what does he do? gleefully accepts and he's paraded on the horse and wearing the clothing of the king and he allows Haman to have to be the one who declares and this is the hero of Purim if you think about it Mordechai it seems like his ego his stubbornness puts the Jewish people at risk what is the source of Mordechai's intransigence why is Mordechai so so stubborn that instead of the hero he's really the villain so what will you answer me? If you're learning the dafyomi, what will you answer me? Yeah, what kind of question is this? Of course Mordechai couldn't bow down. It's Avodazara. can't bow down to somebody who's positioning himself as if they're the source of worship. Mordechai didn't make the choice, it wasn't his ego. He wasn't a villain on no purpose. So True, Avodazara is one of the yaharek Ve'al Yavor, Avodah Zarah is one of the three cardinal sins. And in fact, Ibn Ezra suggests that Haman wore an idolatrous symbol around his neck. When people would bow down to him, he wanted them to really be bowing down to his idol. Rashi says Haman declared himself to be a deity, that Haman saw himself as a god. This is a phenomenon we saw with Paro. Haman, we see it with some of our worst enemies, their ego, which makes sense. I mean, the only way that they could not see God is because they think they are the god. To think you're a god doesn't mean even idolatry. It means you think you're the arbiter of your own destiny. You don't concede and recognize that there's a greater, higher being who controls the world. One sees themselves as a deity when they neglect God or reject God and see themselves as the sole influence in their own life. But either way, it would seem maybe Mordechai was right not to bow down. It's Avodah Zarah, whether it was an idol around Haman's neck or Haman himself saw himself as a deity. But that's not the whole story. The Gemara in Sanhedrin of Samach Gimbal Samach tells us that the law of Yahrich V'al Yavor of having to give up your life rather than engage idolatry only applies if in fact one is buying into the divine nature of the idol. The Halacha that's Yarek V'al Yavor is only if you would be in fact investing in the divinity of the idol. But if you're bowing down only out of fear then one is not liable. And in fact the Rambam in Avodas Kochav in Per Gimel. Halacha Vav quotes this halacha that if you're only bowing down out of fear and not with any sincerity at all, it's not Yahari bal Yah, or you do not have to give your life. The of Mishnah comments, and what's an example of a circumstance where one would have only been bowing down out of fear, not because they really mean it? What's the example, says the of Mishnah of Yosef Karo? The example is bowing to Haman. Because no one with the Jews were bowing to Haman because they're worshipping Haman. They were bowing to Haman out of fear for their lives. So the Kesef of Mishnah's comment on the Rambam only compounds the question and makes it more compelling. Mordechai didn't have to bow. Mordechai was not, I'm sorry, Mordechai did not have to, did not have to uh, refrain from bowing. He could have bowed down. And he should have bowed down. It would have saved the Jewish people. It wasn't Halacha that prevented him from bowing down. It wasn't Yaharik V'al Yavu that prevented him to bow down. So what was it? Ego? Jealousy? Competitiveness? What was the reason he didn't bow down? This is not my question. Many ask this question. Rav Dessler asked this question. This is a sophisticated question, right? We all learn the story of Purim and we learn Mordechai is the hero because he didn't bow down. Everyone else caved Everyone else worshipped. Everyone else did the wrong thing. Oh, Mordechai is the hero. But this flips the whole story on its head. Mordechai is not the hero, he's the villain. Halachat, you're entitled to bow down. What right did Mordechai have to risk the well-being, the safety and security of the whole Jewish people by so stubbornly refusing to bow down? Halacha didn't mandate it, so what did? What right in the world did he have? I want you to hold on to that question. We're going to come back to it. If we don't, remind me to. So we have the allusion to Mordechai in the parsha. Mordechai is Mar doror the choicest, the finest. Right now, at this pause within our question, Mordechai doesn't seem to be the finest and the choicest. Mordechai seems to be the opposite. He seems to be the the villain. Okay. In any case, that's the Shemana Mishra. Then we have the Kitoras, here are all the ingredients. Page 488. It's putrid. And yet it too was one of the ingredients which teaches us that the entirety of the Jewish people, valuing diversity and and celebrating unity. You don't know our tagline, our slogan. Baal on page 488. The parish continues with Hashem reminding us whom He recruited to be the engineer, the architect of the Mishkan. Re'i karasi b'shem, Betzala ben Uri ben Hur lemate Yehuda. Betzala son of Uri, son of Hur of Yehuda. Here the Kliyaka, or the Orchayim go through exactly his qualifications, why he's chosen. Torah tells us, testifies, so Ruach I filled him with the Spirit of God. What are the criteria, what qualities do B'tzalot, does B'tzalot have that make him positioned best to be the architect of the Mishkan? B'chachma, B'tvuna, Ubedas. What's that an acronym for? Chachma, Bina, and Das? Chabad. Chabad. I was going to say Satmar, No. Chabad. Chachma, Bina, and Das. You, you can't joke. And with every craft. Chabad, the Balatanya, the Alta Rebbe, when he talked about Chachma, Bina, and Das. If you study Tanya, you know that even though, of course, Labavitch is a sect of Hasidus, and Hasidus concentrates on the heart, on the emotion, on the Avoda, right? The, the, the difference between Misnagdim and the Hasidim. We gave a whole talk on this in Great Rivalries. Of course, all the different diverse segments of the Jewish people believe in all of these things. The question is, where is the emphasis? For the Nefesh achayim, for Chaim Volazhiner, for Volazhim and Brisk and the chain that has come since then of Mestagdim of Litvish, it's learning Torah, Talmud Torah, Kineged Kulam, it's the intellect, it's Torah, 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 learning Torah, learning Torah, learning. And the Hasidim said, of course, you're even Torah learning, but it's avoda. It's Torah service, it's worship, it's the, Torah, it's the experience of Avodah. So, people mistakenly think that Tanya is going to be all about, you know, only all about, how to daven with kavana, how to make a lachaim with kavana, how to enjoy Avodah. Tanya is all about learning. It's all about endorsing the intellect. The whole system of the Balatanya is not based on davening Nusachari, although that's you know something that comes out. The whole system, the whole Tanya, Sefer Tanya is about Chokhmah, Bina and Das. The acronym for the whole movement, Chabad. Chabad is not, doesn't loosely translate to candlesticks, mezuzahs and putting on tefillin. Chabad is Chokhmah, Bina and Das. It's sitting and learning. What's the difference between Chokhmah, Bina and Das? Are they simply synonyms? Are they redundant? What is the difference? Betzalel is chosen, why? Because he has Chabad. Salah belongs to Chabad. He's got a special pinch in his hat. He wears a garto? What does that mean? So Rabbi Salavich in his Chumash describes the difference. He says, Chokhmah refers to specialized knowledge, which is acquired by extensive and detailed study. Tfuna or Bina is the capacity to analyze, to make distinctions, to draw inferences, and to apply them to various situations. Right? The Gemara says, Why do we make in the bracha of das, You ever think about that on Motzei Shabbos? We say Atachan within the bracha of das. second bracha. Atakad, not the second bracha, the first of the Bakashas. Why in that bracha? Why not in another bracha? And the Gemara Megillah says why? Because Bina is the capacity to be Mavdil, Bain this and Bain that. What is Bina? Bina, so Chachma is knowledge. If you, take a, if you know physics and chemistry and biology, you know Rambam, you know Shekharach, you know Tanya, you've mastered that chachma. It's a body of knowledge. Chachma is knowledge, specialized knowledge. Bina is the capacity to analyze, draw distinctions and apply them in different situations. Bina is analysis. When tvuna is combined with chachma, we have the especially gifted and creative thinker. Da'as, what's da'as? Common sense, basic intelligence, Sound practical judgment, Chachma, bina, and das. Chachma is specialized knowledge. Bina is the capacity to analyze. It's the capacity to draw distinctions, and das is common sense. I shared with you before that, Ravon Lechsenzatzal is a great article on das Torah. The question of das Torah: Do we believe in das Torah? What's das Torah? It's the doctrine that the more Torah you have, the greater your authority to not only paskin on the chicken, is a kosher or not, but to decide about, should we rally for Soviet Jewry? And uh, should we have a Yom HaShoah? And uh, Das Torah, should I buy this house? Should I take this job? Do we subscribe to the doctrine of Das Torah? A very, very big discussion. When was Das Torah even introduced as a doctrine? What does it even mean? In Ravana Lichtenstein's article, I think the title of it is, Can You Have Das Torah Without Das? And he tells the story in then of a shivakwal he paid to Rav Hutner, his rebbe, was sitting shiva. He was very, very um, obviously. He was very bereaved, and uh, when Ravaron walked in to pay a shiva, call to his rebbe. Rofutner had just before been visited by a great Rosh shiva, an outstanding gadol b'yisrael, and Rofutner was irate, and he said to his talmud, Ravaron you know what the chazal said? The gemara says, "Call talmud chacham sheein bodas nevela hemeno." A Talmud Chacham who lacks Das, a carcass, a putrid... Um, what happens to a carcass? A putrid, rotting carcass is better than that Talmud Chacham. So this Talmud Chacham who had just paid the Shiva call to Ravutner said some nonsense about at least you had it this many years or at least you... whatever. You know, the stupid things people say on Shiva calls and uh, try to pass it off as if it was Das Torah. To which Rav Hutner turned to Rav Lechostein and said, of course in the article he doesn't tell us who that was, but of course Rav Hutner turns to Rav Lechostein and says, Chazal say, Kol chacham bodas. So he said to Rav Lechostein, he said, do you hear what Chazal were saying? It doesn't say, Kol am haaret bodas. Every ignoramus who lacks common sense. It says, Kol chacham bodas. You could be a Talmud You could be an enormous Tamil Chacham and have no das. Lack common sense, lack common sense, lack common judgment. And if you're, a ta- so if you're an ignoramus and you lack common judgment, nobody expects anything from you and nobody's going to follow you. But if you're a tamachacham bodas, you're an enormous tamachacham, you know, shas pa'peh, what they call book smarts, but you lack street smarts. You have no common sense. You have no common courtesy. You have no basic judgment, sound judgment. Nivela tova hemenu. So that's sort of thesis: synthesis is, if we are going to subscribe to the doctrine of Das Torah, Das Torah begins with having Das. Das Torah is not those who have the greatest Chachmah. Das Torah has to be built on the foundation of Das. Why do I share that with you here? Because Chachma bina uDas, das utvuna u You could have chachmah and no Das. It's people with a whole lot of Das, they have a lot of street smarts, but they have no chachmah, they have no knowledge, they have no book knowledge. Mitzalah combines the three. Chochmah is the birth of information, intellectual perception, says the Rav. The Targum Yerushalmi, in keeping with the Kabbalah, translates, Barashah's Bara Elohim, as with wisdom, God created the heavens and the earth. The Targum Yerushalmi's Taich, its translation of Barashah's Bara Elohim, is with Chochmah. Why? Wisdom is the beginning of everything, the spring from which all flows, the primal point, the beginning of the created world, which is regulated with mathematical exactitude. Wisdom is represented by the letter Yud, in the ineffable name, the source of intelligence and creativity. Understanding, on the other hand, signifies a more advanced stage, when the crystal clear waters that bubble forth from the string of wisdom become a wide, meandering river, when the point begins to move and forms a line that turns about and delineates two-dimensional space, when the Yud becomes a broad hay. In modern categories of thought, wisdom is intuitive thought, the light of the sensitive intelligence, the initial flash of basic perceptions of principles or axioms, while understanding relates to developed analytical intelligence that deduces one thing from another in order to fully analyze and clarify the basic conception born from wisdom. The first was born in the mysterious infinite wisdom world of wisdom, the second in the ordinary finite world of understanding. Or to put it more simply, wisdom you can achieve through memorization. But... Bina is how to think. Wisdom is knowledge. Knowledge you can get from memorizing. Soon we'll be able to plug a you know, USB drive into our ear and just download the information and memorize. This is a very important insight for our educational, our chinuch models. Are we teaching our children just to memorize? Are we teaching them how to think? Are we teaching them just Chachma? Are we also teaching them Bina? And by the way, do we even think about how to teach them das? Above all is the importance of the sense of the beginning, of axiomatic truth in all spheres, scientific, philosophical, Torah, erudition. The meaning of wisdom, the primal point, the beginning is also important for practical thinking and for deeds. When one wants to do something to achieve certain ends, when he wants to realize a great understanding, he must be guided by wisdom, by the sense of the beginning. He must first feel it's impossible to accomplish the project, that his vision is not an illusion. The inspiration, the germ of the idea, the grasping of the essentials results from wisdom, the primal point, understanding, choosing the means, the detailed knowledge, come only later. Where does the Rav also bring this up? Not in our parsha. He brings this up in Parshas Korach. When the Rav coined the phrase, the common sense rebellion. That Korach rebels. What's Korach's argument? Why should Moshe be in charge? And he asks Moshe, if a room is filled with Sifrei Torah, does it need a mezuzah? One little parchment with one partial exempts the room. Certainly if it's filled with Torahs, it should be exempt. If you have a baget, shekulo t'cheles, if you have a garment that's entirely made of t'cheles, doesn't need t'cheles on the corners. If one string of t'cheles exempts the baget, and from each corner, certainly if the whole garment is... And the Rav says, this is the common sense rebellion. It means that Korach's attitude to Torah was that Torah was da'as. He didn't realize that it's a chachma. Korach thought, you can apply common sense to Torah. I don't have to be versed in it. I don't have to be literate. I don't have to be knowledgeable. I don't have to be a scholar. I can just use my common sense. Ko'lisha doesn't make sense to me. This Malacha doesn't make sense to me. And I think that second day of Yom shouldn't apply anymore and Kitnius I should be able to eat. And I haven't really learned up the sugya. I haven't gone through the issue of organ donation with the Gemara and the Rishonim and the Poskim. It's my common sense. My common sense tells me that's the Halacha. That's walking in the footsteps of Korach. That's thinking that Torah is only Da'as. What Korach failed to see said the Rav is that Torah is Chachmah. Just like you would never posit. I don't think there's such a thing as gravity. Why should something fall if I let go of it mid-air? It should stay where it was. So the physicist looks at you and says, You're a moron. You don't know the ABCs of physics. You haven't studied anything. What are you positing an opinion about physics? You know Gurnished about physics. Torah is a Chachma. Torah is not just a Das. But there's an aspect of Torah which is all three: Chachmah, Bina, and Das. See Tanya for more, and uh, that's what Betzalel here. The Torah is testifying that's what Hashem amaleos Ruach elokim. Hashem filled Betzalel to be the architect of the place that would house Hashem, the Mishkan, the Holy Mishkan. One had to be filled with all three with Chokhmah, Bina, and Das. Next, we have a reminder of Shabbos, and of course, here we have as Shabbososai Tishmaru. What do you mean, Sosai? It should be one. The singular. Shabbos. Observe Shabbos. Why does it say Shabbos in the plural? <coughs> so the Ksava Kabbalah of Yacob Mecklenburg, says, <coughs> First he quotes the Ramban, who says, you know why it's in the plural? Because there are multiple Shabbos in a year. There's one Pesach, there's one Sukkot, there's one Shavuos. Shabbos. Shabbos is 52 comes every week I quoted before Rabbi Friedman should have a full and complete and speedy Ben Ita. he loves to say he asks people what's the next Jewish holiday doesn't work this week actually but it works normally on a Tuesday what's the next Jewish holiday oh Pesach Shabbos Shabbos is also so Shabbos is in the plural because it comes but the the Ksavah uh, Kabbalah of Yaakov Mecklenburg gives a different shot he says Shabbos has a duality Shabbos is what we refrain from, what we abstain from. And that's the malacha. So don't do the 39 acts of creative labor and you're, a sh- and, you're, and you're observing Shabbos in the sense that you haven't violated malacha. But that's only half the story of Shabbos. What's the other part of Shabbos? What do we say here? B'Shamra B'nai Yisrael HaShabbos. Top of page 492. You may be familiar with this passage. B'Shamra B'nai Yisrael HaShabbos. La'asos es HaShabbos. What do you mean La'asos? What do you mean to make Shabbos? Which is it? The Shamru, am I keeping Shabbos? Or Lasos? am I making Shabbos? The answer is both. I observe Shabbos by not violating the Lama Test Malachas. But you know what? I could sit on the couch reading comic books, sipping beer all day, not violating a Malacha. Not exactly the vision that Hashem had for what Shabbos is supposed to be. So, on the one hand, you have to refrain and abstain from the prohibited labor. That's the Shamru. But you also have to Lasos. You have to create a Shabbos atmosphere. You have to create a sense of Shabbos. A joy, a happiness. Zmiros, Divrei Torah, Shabbos clothing, Shabbos tablecloth. There's la sa HaShabbos. And that's what the Ksava Kabbalah says. That's why it's Shabbosai. acha Shabbosai Tishmaru. Dual, two Shabboses. It's not many Shabboses during the year, but every Shabbos is made up of two Shabboses. There's what I'm abstaining from, the malacha, zachor, vishamur. There's the shamur and there's the zachor. Which one guarantees that your children are going to be excited about Shabbos? The vishamru? When does it say that you're going to have continuity? Vishamru, benay, Israel, sah Only la is a Shabbos, then laduro, sam, bris, olam. If Las sos is a Shabbos, if you prepare for Shabbos, you have a good story for the Shabbos table. You have good prizes for the Pasha questions at the Shabbos table. You made good food for the Shabbos table. You're going to sing good zmiras at the Shabbos table. You get dressed for Shabbos at the Shabbos table. Only then, I'm going to get myself in trouble now, but I hate the Shabbos robes. <laughs> uh, the Shabbos robe. It's made its way to Boca. Not in Shul. People don't come to Shul yet in the Shabbos robe in Boca. But to me, it's, you're wearing your pajamas at the Shabbos table. You know, you got your fine china. That's what we talked about. Not only the plate and the bowl, but you got the the charger. You got 17 layers of fine china, and 17 uh, pieces of silver and crystal, and the wine glass. And you killed yourself to make an elaborate meal. And you're sitting there in your pajamas. It's comfortable. I don't want to change. It's Friday night. I just want to be comfortable. That's not Lasos as a Shabbos. Lasos as Shabbos is I put on my P'nei Shabbos ne'kabla, I put on my Shabbos ponim. I've, I've come to the Shabbos table. So when is it Ladoro Sambri Solam? I can tell you when it's not. You know when children and grandchildren have no use and no interest in Shabbos? When you give a kracht and an oive, and you're miserable, and it's Shabbos, I gotta cook for you. I can't believe I gotta cook for Shabbos. Purim's on a Thursday, I gotta cook for Purim. And then I gotta cook for Shabbos. I got to cook, and I got the meal, and I got this. Rabbi Pesach Kron tells the great story. You know the story? It tells the great story of the Ganenet in Israel who was making a Shabbos party for the little kids in the, in the Ghan, in the Cheder. And uh, that, that week it's the boy's turn to be the Shabbos Abba. The little girls the Shabbos Ima. So they each come in the Shabbos clothing. And the girl gets to light the candles and she, you know, covers her eyes and does the whole routine. And Nash says to the boy, okay, hold the kiddush cup. You're going to make kiddush for the whole class. He says, now? She says, yeah, now. So he says... Oh, you're my tired. Let's eat quickly and just get through this meal. She says, "What are you doing?" He said, "That's how my father makes kiddush." <laughs> <laughs> so, it's not ladoro some when we're not lasos shabbos. Is that father who makes kiddush that way every Friday night? Is he a shomer shabbos? The shomer bnei is shabbos. Is he a shomer shabbos? Absolutely is a Shabbos. He's not doing Malacha, he's not checking his phone at the table. But is he fulfilling La Sosa Shabbos? Then it's not gonna be Laduras Sam long. Shabbos has to be the thing that we look forward to all the time. I've shared with you also before that the Oivisral, the aptarov, learns from the Pasuk when it says, Aviv Hadavar, that Yaakov waited for Yosef. Sha Shamar Sadavar. Shamar means to safeguard, means to wait longingly, to anticipate. So if that's the case of a Shomer B'nei Yisrael, is so a Shabbos. When does that happen? <coughs> Not on Friday night in Shabbos. It happens during the week. For the after when are you a Shomer Shabbos? When all week long you look forward to it. Right? Be'i be do you buy the meat now? Baruch Hashem, Yom Yom, or do you buy the best meat and leave it for Shabbos? The Chizkuni in our parsha also talks about being a Shomer Shabbos means that you're thinking about Shabbos during the week. The Ramban says, how do you fulfill that? What did you say this morning at the end of davening? The Shir Shayom began, Hayom, Yom, Shlishi B'Shabas. You say, it's not Tuesday, it's Shlishi B'Shabas. My whole life is a countdown to Shabbas, my whole life is how many days it's been since Shabbos. my whole life revolves around Shabbas. I gave a a Shabbos shudah about Shabbos a bunch of years ago, and I tried to launch a campaign which has since died, in my own home and in the whole community. But the campaign was to set the table for Shabbos on Thursday night to wake up Friday to an of Shabbos. That when you're getting ready Friday morning, you're having your coffee, getting the kids to school, if the Shabbos table is set up by the time you woke up, Friday is not Friday, Friday is of Shabbos. I forgot about it, but this past Thursday night I had to go to someone's house to record a video for a dinner coming up, and I got there at 10 o'clock at night, and uh, the dining room table was set, it was like Shabbos. I was like, oh, it's not Thursday night, it's of Shabbos. That's what it means to be a Shomer Shabbos. The Shomer B'nai Yisrael is a Shabbos and only then is it the Lodor Osam Ben B'nai Yisrael the Os and so on. Okay, great. That's all the fun part of the Parsha. And then that brings us up to the Chait HaEgel. We're not going to spend time. You can listen to previous years. Did they really worship idolatry? It's almost impossible to believe the Jewish people who had experienced the greatest revelation in history could abandon a Ribbon Shalom in the greatest act of infidelity <coughs> worship a calf? Impossible. And if you're finding getting possible to believe, then you don't have to believe it. That's the good news. You don't have to believe it, not because they didn't do it. You don't have to believe it because, according to uh, the Kuzari, they were worshipping Hashem. They just thought they could put Him in a box. They needed something tangible through which to connect with Him. A medium through which to feel His presence. And Moshe was gone. So they were trying to do it now. How? Through the medium of, of an eagle. Of course, God gets furious. His anger flares. That's the section... We're supposed to study today. Hopefully, we'll come back to and look at it at least quickly. Moshe Davins on their behalf. Moshe comes down from the mountain. He smashes the Luchos. What's going on with Moshe smashing the Luchos? Did Moshe smash the Luchos? Did Moshe drop the Luchos? Did he intentionally break them? That's supported by the idea that Hashem said, Yashiko'ach shibarta. Asher shibarta at the end of Chomesh. shibarta. Or no? Were they so heavy that he couldn't continue to hold them? The Rav is a beautiful. Explanation here too, where he describes man can exist in one of two states as an object or a subject. This is classic brisker as a chefza or a gavra, one who acts or one who's acted upon. If, for example, a person climbs a mountain concentrating on the difficult task at hand, straining to maintain his footing as he reaches higher and higher, he acts as a gavra, as a subject. But if suddenly, by loosening a rock upon which he's balanced, he loses his footing and falls into the abyss, the gavra is transformed into a chefza. I'll put it differently. If you walk up Masada, you're a Gavra. If you take the, Hef- the cable car, you're a Gavra. A person acts as a Gavra as long as he opposes external forces. The mountain climber opposes the force of gravity. The Gavra mobilizes his energy and free will against such forces. The Gavra does not act against forces, but is subservient to them. The metaphor of descent, as it applies to the Gavra is similarly applied when Bnei Israel sin. Because right? what does it say here? Over and over, Moshe is told to go down, Hashem comes down, we have the imagery of going down over and over again here in this section. And Moshe drops, the luchos drop, they go down. So the Rav explains the metaphor of descent applies to a cheftza. Moshe was an ascender when as a gavra, Filled with love for the Creator, he pined for confirmation of God's forgiveness towards his people. In this role, Moshe could overcome all psychological and physical obstacles, and in the cold wind of morning, he climbed the mountain to meet the Master of the Universe. Moshe, in his guise, was capable of carrying not only two tablets, but the entire world on his shoulders. But after Moshe had climbed the mountain the first time, at what should have been this moment of triumph, the sinning nation defeated him. God's voice thundered. Moshe's defeat came at the hands of the iniquitous nation under his charge. An unbearable force was unleashed on Moshe, propelling him downward until he could no longer hold the tablets aloft. In one instant, the greatest of all men turned into an object, a descender. The tablets became too heavy for Moshe to bear and he shattered them at the foot of the mountain. So the notion of a gavra versus a chepzah and the luchos, which were what propelled him to be the gavra, when man falls, one turns himself into a chepzah. A chepzah, an object, is subject to gravity. Or an object is vulnerable to gravity, and that's what's going on over here. So Moshe either destroys the luchos, which is a tremendous if you if you assume he did it intentionally, boy is that a bold move. Hashem gives him these miraculous luchos. These were not ordinary. They had miracles. The Samach, the Mem, sofis were suspended in air was engraved all the way through. Yet all Torsh Basal, all engraved on these tablets. Unbelievably miraculous tablets from Hashem. Could you imagine Chalila taking a safe Torah and throwing it to the ground? That's what Moshe Rabbeinu did, and Hashem says to him, Yashukoch. And what happened to those broken pieces? Luchos vishivrei luchos menachem ba'aron. Gemara baba elsewhere say they both end up in the in the aron, which is also significant that we hold on to the broken moments and the broken pieces too. Moshe Davins, there's an aftermath of the golden of the uh, Chetah Ego. He pleads for Hashem to come near. Moshe has a vision. He wants to understand Hashem's ways, but Hashem doesn't allow him to see his ways. Moshe is given the second set of tablets. Hashem reveals the 13 midos through which we can achieve. This is also a great misnomer. I think we talked about this last year. People misquote the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah that all you have to do is say the 13 midos, Hashem Hashem ke'orachim and that's why selichos, we just repeat them over and over, Hashem can't help but forgive us. But that's not accurate. It doesn't say, all you have to do is imru It says, imitate me, behave like me, perform before me these 13 things, and I can't help but forgive you. So the Yid Midos are not just some hibijibi formula that we get to recite, and Hashem forgives us. They are a prescription, a formula for how to behave, And that is when He forgives us. So I want to go back and take a quick look at that section and with it answer our question about Mordechai. By now you already forgot that question. You still remember it? Is Mordechai the hero or is Mordechai the villain? Halachically, he was entitled to bow down. Why didn't he bow down? So how are we going to answer that? So I want to answer it with the following. Where are we over here? Perek Lama Bez Pasuk Zayin. Perak lamed bays pasuk Zion. This is what we're going to read tomorrow on the fast day. By the Bereshit Moshe LeMor, Perak lamed bays pasuk lamed zayin. I'm sorry, pasuk zayin. The bottom of page four ninety four. By <speaking> the <in> Bereshit Moshe Lech read kishichei amcha shalisa mitzrayim. Quickly, get off the mountain. I've got an update for you. It's not fake news that the Jewish people have become corrupt. I took them out of Egypt and they're corrupt. Quick, go down. Because they strayed from the way I've commanded. They made themselves a golden calf. They're bowing down to it, calling it their God. Hashem says, I've seen this nation. They are a stiff-necked people. What does it mean they're a stiff neck? What is the imagery of being stiff neck? There's an imagery of stubbornness. Why do we give a symbol being stiff neck? What does that have to do with stubbornness is your neck? What does that have to do with your neck? So look at the... Look at the... Svarna. It's as if their neck is made out of rigid iron. They can't turn in any direction to hear what anyone else has to say. They're wearing blinders and they are simply pursuing what they want and their neck has no flexibility to it, they can't look to see or hear. But often says says Hashem to Moshe, their Amk so much so, there's no hope. You can only when you're going down the wrong path, what's your only hope? That you'll turn your head to see that there's another path. But if your neck is so stiff <coughs> that you can't turn your head to see there's another path, there's no hope. You're hopeless. There's no way you're gonna do chuva. The Ezra also here talks about it. Someone's running on their path, and they can't turn their neck to hear someone is calling after them. In other words, they were idolaters, they're being called after, but they can't turn their head to hear the person calling after them. So what does Hashem say? What's their greatest liability? They're stubborn. They're hopeless. They're incorrigible. And therefore, I can't forgive them. And Moshe, get down from the mountain. You need to know what's going on. Hashem says, listen, leave me alone. Don't try to daven to me. Rashi here comments the other before Shem 2, Why is Hashem saying, don't daven to me? Has Moshe tried to daven? He hasn't tried anything yet. He's just finding out about it. So why is Hashem saying, Hanichali, leave me alone. I'm angry. I want to destroy them. So Rashi tells us, this is so beautiful, the imagery. What was Hashem really telling Moshe? Hurry up and daven. Don't daven. I don't want to hear you davening. Don't daven. Because I'm not going to change my mind. Moshe said, "I, I wasn't davening. I said, no, stop davening says so Rashi, Hashem was really telling him, I can change my mind, if you doubt him. So what does Moshe do? So Moshe pleads before Hashem, and he says, why should your anger, you took him out of Egypt, it's such a strong hand. What You're going to let Egypt, you just decimated Egypt, you just showed your dominion over the world, and now you're going to let Egyptians get the last laugh? they're going to say that God took the Jews out to annihilate them from the face of the earth? Please, Hashem, relent. Please. Remember, they swore on you. To whom you swore that you said to them, you gave them a promise. God, if you go back on your promise, before Hashem explain, Moshe's strategy here is, Hashem... If you go back on your promise, it'll be the biggest Chil Hashem. Hashem, don't make a Chil Hashem. In other words, you created the world to fill with your glory, with your name. If you do this, it will diminish your name. Our entire mission, the whole purpose of life is to expand your name, to promote your name. And if you do this, it's going to set back the whole mission. And that strategy works. The old, Hashem, if you destroy us, it's only, you're going to hurt us, but you're going to even hurt yourself. Hashem says, okay, fair enough. Now, when does this section appear? Is a big machlokas. The Ramban says, it appeared right now. It appeared right now. Moshe is still in the mountain. He hasn't gone down yet. He's still going to go down, see the egel, smash the tablets, have to daven again. Hashem's is going to forgive. This was just like a, like a um, ceasefire. Hashem, just hold off right now. Give me a chance. Let me go check out what's going on. Let me bring them back. Let me deal with this. On the before, I would say, "No." This whole section appears afterwards. It only it shows now. It appears here, but it's really referring to. It's really referring to later. What exactly is the strategy? There's a long kliyakar here. What was Moshe invoking with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? What are the references? What is he invoking? How does he get Hashem to change his mind? Though the Ibn Ezra is very careful to say. I don't think Hashem changed his mind. Hashem's mind doesn't change. We're using anthropomorphism. We're describing based on human beings. Hashem knew all along what was going to happen, what did happen, what He wanted to happen. From our perspective, He's changing His mind. What did He change His mind? What was the Ra'ah? He changed His mind from doing the Ra'ah what was the Ra'ah? Sala'a <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, says two possibilities. Either Haral <speaking> Amo that he was going to destroy his people, or <speaking> What exactly is the Ra'ah? We're out of time. I wanted to go into each of these things, but I want to tell you my, how we're going to answer that question with one more question. So here, Hashem tells Moshe, "They're hopeless. They're incorrigible. They're stiff-necked. I give up on them." Later, Moshe is going to come back to Hashem in our parsha, and Moshe is going to advocate, and he's going to tell them, "Hashem, you got to forgive them." And why do you have to forgive them, Hashem? Because why do you have to forgive them? Page five hundred two. I'm sorry. That's not the place. Where is the place? Right, so Hashem tells Moshe, I'm They're stiff necked. And a moment later he says, Moshe, I'm going to take you down. But later, when Moshe is really appealing to Hashem, what does he say? We do it in the laning on a fast day. Ki Moshe says, And why do you have to forgive them? Because? Am I don't understand. Hashem just said, This is their greatest liability. The reason they're hopeless and incorrigible is, They're so stubborn. Moshe says, You have to forgive them. Why should you forgive them? Because they're so stubborn. Is it an asset or a deficiency? Is it admirable? Or is it deplorable? What's going on over here? So I think the answer can be found. I'm going to tie together everything now. We talked about the macht, the shekel was a coin that Hashem showed him on fire. Why did Hashem show Moshe the image of a coin on fire? So I want to suggest that Hashem was telling Moshe money is like fire. Is fire good or bad? Yes. Both. When fire provides energy, it performs warmth, it provides light, fire is good. When fire consumes and fire destroys, fire is Bad. Fire is not inherently good or bad, it's all what we do with it. Money is a powerful force in the universe like fire. When it's channeled for good, staka, it's selfless. If it's channeled for ego, it's selfish. Money's like fire. Maybe the Rebun Shalom I want to suggest was showing Moshe a coin on fire to suggest money like fire is not inherently good or bad, it's all what you do with it. How you channel it. The same is true with Midos. The Piyazetz Nareba has, of Kalanimous Kalman Shapiro, in his hakdama, Dama, HaTalmidim, he has a magnificent essay written to parents and educators. Magnificent. And he talks about exactly this. He says, human qualities are not inherently good or bad. They're all how they're channeled. They're all what you do with it. And he gives this example of stubbornness. He said, what does the typical parent do? The young child is stubborn. Insists on buckling the car seat himself or herself. But you're late to carpool. They're setting back your whole day. So what do we do? We try to break the stubbornness within the child. Says the Piazzat in the Red, but what a mistake. Stubbornness is not bad. Stubbornness is wonderful. How is stubbornness wonderful? Because when that child becomes a teenager and all his friends or her friends blow with the wind and give give in to whatever the latest influence is, that stubborn child is going to remain steadfastly true to whatever you taught him or her. So stubbornness is not bad. Stop trying to break it. Embrace the stubbornness. Set them on the right path and that stubbornness is going to be fantastic. And the that's and the Rebbe there gives a number of examples of midos. He says anger, rage, good or bad. Well, obviously anger and rage are bad, but rage is the result of a fire in one's belly. So what do most parents do when the child has a fire in their belly? We medicate them. We take them to therapists. We try to douse the fire. We try to put it out. Says the pizetz the rebbe, what a mistake! That child has passion and a fire in their belly. So you're right; it's unhealthy when it comes out as anger and rage. Redirect it. Take the passion and the fire in the belly and use it for good. And he gives this example with all the mitzvos. So that's also true. That's what's going on. Am Kashei oref. Rebbe says they're stubborn people. As long as they're on the wrong path and they're unwilling to turn their neck, they're incorrigible. They're hopeless. Moshe Rabbeinu says exactly, but let me get them on the right path. And when I do, and they're stubbornly on that path, that's their greatest asset. That's their greatest virtue. That's their greatest merit. So Am amkashayoraf, is being stiff-necked. Is it an asset or a liability? Is it good or is it bad? Is money good or is it bad? Is fire good or is it bad? One of the messages of our parsha is that none of these things are inherently good or bad. We come back to Mordechai. It was Mordechai, the mar Why did Mordechai not bow down? Halachically he was entitled to. Rev. Dessler and others, I want to suggest to you, based on everything we're saying, the following. Judaism in Shushan and all of Persia at the time of the story of, of Purim was disintegrating very rapidly. Mordechai watched as his co-religionists lost their Torah values, their distinct identities. They were assimilating, they were blending into Persian society. Chazal tell us they drank from the kalim of the Mishkan or the Mikdash. They ate forbidden foods, they dressed promiscuously, and so on. And our rabbis attribute the threat of annihilation not to Mordechai's actions, but to the Jewish community wanting so badly to fit in. Ahasuerus invites them to his party. And what was his party marking? What was it celebrating? Their demise. The base of Mikdash is not going to be rebuilt. Now we could finally make use of these Kalem. They're not holy and sacred to the Jewish people. They're mine. They're royal. He invites the Jews to a party celebrating their own demise, and they so badly want to fit in, they actually attend. There was a spirit of assimilation, of apathy, of indifference, of openness, of flexibility, and Mordechai sees in that context, in that environment, that culture that the Jewish people are losing their Jewishness. So what does Mordechai do? In a culture where Jews are losing their Jewishness, he decides he's going to be Mr. Super Jew, a proud and tenacious Jew. And how do I know that? Because how does the Megillah describe him? Ish Yehudi There was one Jew, unwavering, unambiguous in what he believed, He's known in the Megillah as Ish Yehudi, Ayab Shushan Abir. What do you mean there was only one Jew? Shushan had a big Jewish community. What do you mean, Ish Yehudi? There was only one Jew. And the answer is the other Jews were not acting like Jews. They were assimilating, they were integrating, they were forgetting their core who they were. And so, yes, technically, halachically, he could have bound down. And most did, but Mordechai never would. Not the Ish Yehudi, who longed to restore Jewish pride to his community. His doggedness precipitated Haman's ire and elicited the decree. But look what happened. Look what happened. Because Haman had this anti-Semitism, Mordechai couldn't get them to stop eating non-kosher. He couldn't get them to stop going to the country club. He couldn't get them to stop going to the party. He couldn't get them to stop assimilating. What got them to stop doing it? What reminded them that they were Jews? What reminded them? Haman and his decree, and what does Esther succeed in doing? Go gather all those Jews. Go remind them that they're Jews. The Jewishness within them. And the end of the story, the Jews are the envy of Shushan. You can be a Mishnah without forfeiting your being a Yehudi. The beginning and the end of the Megillah, he remains, Mordechai Hayehudi. And one of the major messages of the story of Purim is Jewish pride, is to remember who we are, and that not to bow down to the culture, and not to bow down to the pressures, and not to bow down to the influences that are around us, but to remain the Amkeshe Oref, that stiff-necked people. Mordechai was a stubborn Ish-Yehudi. So it began with ish Yehudiya Ya and it ends with, Kinos kol ha-yehudim. Mordechai is a hero for displaying the Akshamos to Kedusha. He had a holy, holy stubbornness. When we embrace stubbornness and use it in a holy way, then it's a vehicle for great things. And that's why Mordechai is the hero. Please remain for Abed Masku, It's a shir. Tonight, the finale, Moments That Mattered. Wishing everyone a Frey Purim. If you're leaving, a Kasha Kasher V'sameach.